Father God, we come to you now in the name of Jesus, our risen Savior, our Lord Jesus. And we invite your Holy Spirit to open our eyes so that we might encounter him this morning in our worship, in the preaching of the word, and that we might be transformed and that we might be overjoyed. And then, Lord, that we might be sent back into the world. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Describing the self-evident demise of Britain's political and economic clout, in November 2011, the Times journalist Matthew Paris wrote this, quote, As our strange times unfold, more and more do I believe that the story of the politics and economics of the Western world has become the story of evasion. We look away from what stares us in the face. The imperium of the West is over, never to return. Our predominance is gone. Our inheritance is diminished. We are being humbled and will not be raised up again. We have overstretched our own resources. We have been outspending our own budgets. Our output has been falling behind while our shopping habits have been racing ahead. We're broke and have no means of getting rich again. It's not the end of the world or even of our world. We're not going to die. We're not going to starve. But the direction is gently down for the rest of our lives. Woohoo! Welcome to MRC! <laughs> now, Matthew Paris is no prophet. In fact, he's not even a Christian. But he is a very astute observer of social trends. And I was struck as I read through those words again recently, which I had read not long after moving to Oxford, what's happened in these last 12 to, to 14 years. Think about the Trump era and its aftermath, or maybe round two of Trump coming up, who knows. Think of the continued rise of China and India as new superpowers with very little regard for the values of the Western world. Think of the COVID-19 pandemic and its shockwaves, Russia's invasion uh, of Ukraine and the war and the, the impact on energy markets, the cost of living crisis that we're facing, rising interest rates, which a number of us are feeling, climate change and the crisis in how to sustainably manage our energy needs. The point I want to make is, of course, that while such volatility and loss of power and position is new for many of us believers in the UK, it's not really that new for Christians throughout the majority world. The mission of God through the church started from a position of weakness, humanly speaking, with men and women who had all the odds stacked against them. They were a minority. And of course, it's a fact today that all over the world, mission in the way of Christ is happening in a similar way, from weakness, from poverty, from social alienation, and in the context of persecution. Today, we're going to be commissioning Johnny. Johnny, you're going to be sent. Sent to a part of the world that until very recently has been very, very resistant to the good news of Jesus Christ. And so there are very good and real reasons for you to feel fearful and perhaps not equal to the task. 
So this morning's message is for you, Johnny, but it's not just for you, it's for all of us. Of course, you're being commissioned and you'll find in my sermon today, a little bit like a wedding, when the preacher directs the sermon right at the married couple, I'm going to be doing that quite a few times. I hope that's okay. But it's not just for you, it's for all of us, the MRC Church family. This is a message for all of us, not just because you're Johnny's primary sending church, but also because of your calling as individuals and as a local church who have been also called to mission in the way of Christ in East Oxford. And I felt when I was preparing as well over this past week or two, there are some of you here who are not from MRC and you're not currently thinking that God is sending you, but there may be a message for you as well today. So listen up. There are three dimensions that I want us to consider as we reflect on this encounter with the risen Lord Jesus here with the disciples in the upper room that the Apostle John has recorded for us. Three words, fear, transformation, commission. More precisely, I want to talk about firstly the reality and crippling hold that fear has so often on our lives. Number two, the transforming power and peace that comes from an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. And thirdly, the commissioning to be sent in the way of Christ. So firstly, fear. If you look down at the beginning of verse 19, you'll see very clearly it's evening, the doors are locked, uh, and this is not a group of believers who are open to the world. It says there, for fear of the Jews, that indicates that they were scared of the religious authorities, and they had reason to be scared. They'd been with Jesus. They'd seen him heal the sick. They'd seen him preach and teach to literally thousands. They'd seen him raise the dead. But as we saw in chapter 19, or if you look back in chapter 19, you'll see he was executed. So he's no longer with them. And they were frightened. Fear of the unknown, of course, is universal. All of us experience fear. Fear of danger or threat is, of course, not only rational, but it's also a kind of primordial mechanism for staying alive, isn't it? And the Bible seems to distinguish between two types of fear. Firstly, the fear of the Lord, and secondly, what is sometimes called the spirit of fear. And what the disciples are experiencing here at this point is not the fear of the Lord. It is the spirit of fear. Joyce Meyer calls fear the master spirit. And I think fear is one of the devil's greatest weapons. Psychologists and psychotherapists and counselors often talk about a particular triad of fears. The fear of death, the fear of abandonment, and the fear of failure. I wonder if any of you experience those on a regular basis. And our response to such fears often leads us to a desire or an attempt to control. To control our circumstances, to control other people, to control outcomes. Let me illustrate uh, this. Um, How rational fear, if you like reasonable fear, can become the spirit of fear. About six weeks ago, When I was um, exploring a a new dog walking trail to take our dog Jazz on, um, the trail started, it starts from Sawston, and then it goes over a railway line to the neighboring village of Whittlesford, not far from us. 
and it crosses the railway line in two places. And at one of them, there is a proper crossing with lights and a barrier that comes down any time the, the train approaches. So you know about it. But at the other crossing point, uh, there's no lights or barrier, just a swing gate. And as I walked across the barrier uh, on, on this particular day, at the very last minute, I realized that a train was approaching very fast. And I was absolutely petrified. I grabbed Jazz, I pulled her into my arms, pulled away from the railway line just as the train came whistling past. It was a nearish miss. What was also a bit creepy was that the driver, as he went past, smiled and gave me the thumbs up. <laughs> like, well done for staying alive, I guess. Um, so the fear experience was a rational response to real danger and the threat of death. Johnny knows, and we all know, that there is no mission without risk. It doesn't exist. But imagine that if in response to that minor traumatic event that I just mentioned, I then decided to never walk that trail again. It's a beautiful trail, by the way. And then suppose that that fear associated with that particular event made me say to Kitty and to Nate and to Nama, no, I forbid you from walking this trail, as if I could do that anyway, um, and force them not to do that. Or I decided, right, I'm never going to take Jazz out. I'm just going to put her in the car, drive her to a very safe park. Of course, this is a relatively flippant example, but hopefully you can see how fear can take hold and shape our responses to difficulty, to risk, to change, to conflict, to pain, and basically to the dimensions of, frankly, what it means to be human. Fear makes it hard for love to grow. That's how John Mark Comer puts it. Fear makes it very hard to take risks, and there is very rarely change and growth without risks being taken. And I think this scene that we're looking at now in this passage of the early disciples huddled in the upper room with the doors closed is almost like a kind of metaphor uh, for the state of many of our churches. We gather with the doors closed for fear of those who would oppose us or fear of what might happen if the doors were opened and we were sent into the world. Maybe like the early disciples in the upper room, we're afraid of, of those who oppose us, of what they might say about us or do to us. Or perhaps some of us are even struggling with the thought that, is Jesus really here? Has he abandoned us? Is he really present? Despite all his promises, are we seeing that in our lives? So my question for you this morning, are you afraid? And what is it that you fear? And how much does fear shape your choices, your actions, or your reactions to people, to change, to risk, to failure? Well, secondly, what we see here is that a transformation occurs to these disciples. What is it that causes it? It's very simple. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead. And if nothing else, I stand before you this morning to preach that Jesus rose from the dead. In verse, uh, verses 19, the rest of 19 through 20, I want us to consider uh, three ways in which the resurrection transforms the disciples. Through giving peace, through his presence, and through the joy of knowing Jesus. So firstly, we see that in verse 19. Jesus comes in and says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. This is a very common greeting in the Muslim world. Salamu alaikum is how it goes. But here... Into the fear and confusion, 
Jesus does not only speak words of peace, he actually stands among them. These are not just comforting words. You know, there are some who say, even some who claim to be Christians, that this account is just that, comforting words. Another story of the uh, you know, indomitable spirit, uh, a myth of power of good over evil. But here and elsewhere, John makes it very clear that what he and the other disciples experienced was the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus. And this is the second dimension, the presence of Jesus. Look at the second half of verse 19. Jesus came and stood among them. The text, of course, doesn't say how he got through the door or how he entered the room, but he was really there with him in his resurrection body. And everything changed as a result of that. Everything changed as a result of that. And it's specific and real, isn't it? In verse 20, Jesus wants them to know that he's really with them. So he shows them his body, his real scars, his hands and his side. Jesus overcame death, the last enemy, and he is really standing amongst them. And that's why the Apostle Paul writes those very powerful words about the supreme importance of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he writes this, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But we do have hope, MRC, because as Paul writes in his letter to the Colossian church, we, in in chapter one, we have been reconciled by Christ's physical body. And then you see what they experience. It's very clear in the text, in the second part of verse 20. Uh, it says the disciples were overjoyed, overjoyed. Joy is the natural reaction to the presence of Jesus meeting them in their fear and isolation. And it's the beginning of an experience that will last for eternity. And this indeed is the true mark of a born-again or a born-from-above Christian. Joy. Joy which has, frankly, very little to do with circumstances or even the state of our emotions and everything to do with the presence of the risen Jesus in our lives. C.S. Lewis calls joy, and I love this, the serious business of heaven. And I love this observation that he made that joy bursts in our lives when we go about doing the good at hand and not trying to manipulate things and times in order to achieve joy. Elsewhere, he writes this, I sometimes wonder whether all pleasures are not substitutes for joy. You cannot manufacture joy. Joy comes from an encounter with the risen Jesus. And I want to say this to you, MRC, this morning. I have seen joy, the joy of the Lord in this church family, in all kinds of seasons especially painful ones. And as we pray for you this morning, Johnny, and we'll be praying for you in the months and the years to come, these words came to mind from Paul's uh, first letter to the Thessalonians. 
in relation to what you've seen in MRC and how you've seen the Lord in our midst. You became, Paul writes to, to the Thessalonian church, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with joy given by the Holy Spirit. And then finally, commission, being sent. Sent in the way of Jesus. It's amazing, isn't it? In this account, it moves very, very fast. There's hardly any time for them to stay there and enjoy the moment. You sort of think, oh man, if that was me, I just want to stay there for a very, very long time. But almost straight away, they're commissioned to go. And it's almost as if this experience of joy, this this worship of the risen Lord Jesus, which would have been formidable, has to be shared immediately. It's not just for them. It's for the whole world. It's for the whole world. And that idea is picked up at the very start of uh, John Piper's book on, on mission called Let the Nations Be Glad. Some of you will be familiar with this. It begins with that idea that worship is eternal, but missions is temporary. This is what he writes. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. We will worship God forever. And so if you've encountered the risen Lord Jesus, if you've enjoyed his presence, his fellowship, then like the disciples here, John is leading you to the inevitable conclusion that you are commissioned to go. Having been scared, then experiencing the resurrected power of Jesus, the disciples are commissioned to go in the way of Jesus and declare the praises of God. So with this commissioning in verse 21, John records a second time of Jesus saying, peace again. Now that's strange. What's wrong? Did they not feel the peace the first time? Why does he have to say it twice? Well, I think there are maybe three reasons why. Firstly, it's because he knows what he's sending them into. Um, he's sending them into a world of unpeace, a world that he knows is going to be hostile. Hostile to the gospel, hostile to the lordship of Christ, and therefore hostile to them as Christ's followers. Secondly, it seems to me that the first piece in verse 19 addresses the fears and doubts from within themselves, whereas the second verse, uh, the second piece in verse 21 addresses the inevitable turmoil and opposition that will come when they step out. And it's often both, isn't it? There are real threats and risks on the outside, but there's the issue of fear in our hearts. But I think there's a third reason as well, and I want to just touch on it briefly, because I want us to be real, real with what the Word of God is saying, real with what the reality of, of, of what uh, Johnny is about to engage in. And the third reason I think that he gives them this piece again is because the commissioning is costly. It's costly. I've been thinking about that recently as we've moved back to Cambridge uh, from Oxford. We've joined a church called Holy Trinity. Holy Trinity is a church where Charles Simeon used to be uh, a preacher and pastor. Charles Simeon himself never uh, went overseas in mission, but he was a key 
key person in raising up a whole generation in the first wave of the modern missionary movement, people like the Cambridge Seven, who you may have heard of, and others. He influenced someone called Bernard, who also influenced uh, somebody who I've been reading up about called Henry Martin. I'd heard about Henry Martin in the past, but I was thinking about him recently because his name is associated with the Cambridge Center for Christianity Worldwide, where I was last week. And I was struck just how costly the commissioning and the sending of Henry Martin was. He died at the age of about 32 of the plague. Um, he was sent to India. He was phenomenally productive. He worked with the East India Company because he didn't have enough independent means and he needed a salary to be a chaplain with the East India Company. But most of the time he devoted to the translation of the Bible into Urdu, into Persian, and he was one of the people responsible for the first translation of the Bible into Arabic. And he was a pioneer of engaging with Muslims, dialogue and mission with Muslims. He didn't think of himself as being very successful at all, but he had a huge effect on a generation that followed him. But only about seven years in ministry and with so much difficulty. Yet in his journals, you can see there was always a joy, a joy for God. He certainly suffered, but he wanted to share that joy with others. It was a deep frustration for him that he didn't see enough of that in his own life. And it struck me the cost, the cost relationally, he was left standing by uh, Lydia Grenfell, who was his sweetheart, who he was deeply in love with and hoped would come with him. But in the end, she decided she just couldn't go. And quite frankly, I don't blame her. Some might have, but if you think about what happened to William Carey's first wife, um, you know, it, it, well, I won't, I won't say any more about that now. But my point is that he's, he, he, the cost was great for him. So Johnny, the path you're setting out now is a narrow way. You will know the cost, as indeed will your family and your friends and us as your church. MRC, this is also what you have been called to in East Oxford. I know you felt the cost of what it means to, to, to share the gospel with this, with this community, to open up this space uh, for all the nations to come in here. But my point to you, Johnny, and to MRC this morning is you are not alone. The risen Lord Jesus wants to give us, wants to give you his, his peace. His presence will be with you and he will never abandon you. There is no promise of an easy life, but there is absolutely a sure and sound promise that he will never leave you. And I want you to cultivate joy. Cultivate joy in the Lord, in the risen Lord. And so, finally, what was this commission then? What is actually this commission that you've been given? Well, I think at the heart of this passage, both theologically and structurally, is, is this statement. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. What does it mean to be sent on mission in the way of Jesus? Well, of course, I could say so much about this. Um, and we could look back at the whole of John's Gospel and cite numerous examples. We could go to the Sermon on the Mount. But what I want to do is just focus, um, I think helped by the Lord Jesus himself and the Apostle John, by focusing on the prayer that Jesus prayed to his disciples and for those who would believe through them in John chapter 7 and verse 13 to 19. This is what Jesus prayed. I am coming to you now, he's praying to the Father. 
But I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. And so I want to finish with these three things. I think what being sent in the way of Jesus means three things. It means being monks and merchants. It means proclaiming and demonstrating. And it means being spirit-empowered. Firstly then, listen again. Jesus said, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Sanctify them by your truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them. Historically, there has been what some church historians or missiologists call a monk-merchant divide. And you can see that throughout the whole movement of church history. Just if you look in, in very general terms, think about uh, Constantine's conversion. Sometimes historians call that the Constantinian turn. Suddenly the whole Roman Empire becomes uh, Christian. And that creates a, a, a kind of marriage of church and state, which, which then itself begets you know, various other um, empires which claim to be Christian. And as a reaction to that, historically, you have the monastic movement that sees what happens when the world corrupts the church and wants to draw away to be committed and devoted to God. And of course, both of these uh, emphases have a basis, a strong basis in Scripture, from the passage we just read and from other passages. The desire for purity, to live in community, these are good things. But of course, monasticism, drawing away, can lead to a kind of pietism. We've seen it even in the history of our own local church. We build up our walls and we don't go into the world and occasionally we invite people to come in. But of course the desire to be salt and light, which is again wonderful, to be incarnational can lead us to become worldly as well. So there is this tension. I want to say the monks, that is the people who are in ministry or mission, need to be in the world as much as the merchants, that is the people who are in business or in industry or whatever, they need to be of Christ as much as the monks. Both are on God's mission. If you're a disciple of Jesus and you have met the risen Jesus, then this commission is for all of us, for all of you. If you look back at uh, that prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17, John makes it clear that when Jesus addresses the disciples, he's also addressing us who have believed through them. And so the question for us this morning is not, should I become or continue to be a lawyer or be in mission and ministry? Should I continue being a teacher or be in mission and ministry? Should I become or continue to be active in politics or be in mission and ministry? Should I become or continue to be a stay-at-home mum or dad or be in mission and ministry? 
The question rather is, what kind of lawyer and teacher and politician and stay-at-home mum and dad, what kind of academic or engineer or business person, or you fill in the blank, will you be? Will it be the kind that acquiesces to the world around you, or the one who engages in mission in the way of Christ, in the sphere where God has placed you? You may remember that uh, scene. Some of you have seen the, the film Amazing Grace about the life of William Wilberforce. And there's that great scene at one point where the British abolitionist Thomas Clarkson uh, says to Wilberforce, we understand that you are having some difficulty in deciding whether to do the work of God or the work of a political activist. And there's a sort of pregnant pause and a moment of silence. And then Hannah Moore, the English writer, whispers, we humbly suggest that you can do both. And this is what is sometimes called the power of and. Beware of false choices. Beware of false dichotomies. But Jesus also prays that the disciples will be sanctified uh, by, or simply translated, living consistent with the word of truth. Um, and so I think it also means we need to proclaim that word of truth, live by it, and we need to demonstrate it. So proclaiming and demonstrating. In 1967, John Stott, at a conference in Berlin, which was one of the precursors to the uh, Lausanne movement for world evangelization, uh, he was giving a meditation, a biblical meditation, and he simply called it the Commission of Christ. Of course, everyone there thought that he was talking about the Great Commission, Matthew 28. But he wasn't. He was talking about the passage that we've just heard, read, and that I'm preaching from. At that time when he was living in the 60s and 70s, there was a big debate in public between what was sometimes called the, the gospel of social action and the, and the gospel of proclamation. So there was this kind of uh, uh, divide. And in that meditation, and indeed throughout his whole life, John Stott talked about how the gospel needs to be both proclaimed and demonstrated. But to do this faithfully, we need to know the message of the gospel well. And we really need to know the world in which we're living. And I remember when Kitty and I were undergrads at Durham, John Stott coming and preaching. And he, he talked about how we need to read the Bible in one hand with the newspaper in the other. Always read the Bible in one hand with the newspaper in the other. I'm not sure what the modern equivalent would be today. His point in that Bible meditation and throughout his other writings is that in, in gathering to build the found, in, as they've gathered to build the, build the foundations of the Lausanne movement, um, that always proclamation and demonstration go together. This is what he wrote. We have to penetrate other people's worlds as he penetrated the Lord Jesus ours. The world of their thinking as we struggle to understand their misunderstandings of the gospel. The world of their feelings as we try to, as we try to empathize with their pain and the world of their living as we sense the humiliation of their social situation, whether poverty or homelessness or unemployment or discrimination. We are given authority to proclaim and demonstrate this message of reconciliation. And I think this is what is meant in verse 23 by that peculiar phrase, if you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Put simply, I think it means if people don't see us walking the talk, they will rightly assume that the talk really isn't worth much at all. And that's the biggest obstacle that the World Church has with mission. 
It's the church itself. How does anyone know that they're forgiven if that is not demonstrated? Referring to this holistic vision, Tom Wright, in his book, Surprised by Hope, puts it this way. People who work out at and for this mission in the wider world must themselves be living, modeling, and experiencing the same thing in their own lives. There is ultimately, he continues, no justification for a private piety that does not work out in actual mission. Just as there is ultimately no justification for people who use their activism in social, cultural, and the political sphere as a screen to prevent them facing the same challenges within their own lives. The challenge, he writes, that is of God's kingdom, of Jesus' lordship, and of the Spirit's empowering. If the gospel isn't transforming you, how do you know that it's going to transform anyone else? And you know, in the process to bring Johnny to the point where he is now, that's been a key question that the elders and the Barnabas group and the church as a whole have been asking. Is the gospel transforming Johnny? If we didn't feel that it was, he wouldn't be sent today. And finally, God knows how difficult God knows how difficult and, humanly speaking, impossible this task is. None of us are equal to it. And that's why he gives us his spirit. So being sent in the way of Jesus finally means being spirit-empowered. In verse 22, Jesus breathes on them. Normally when you think about people breathing on you, it's a bit unpleasant because they've got bad breath. But I tell you what... That would have been the best experience of being breathed on ever. The word breathe here, by the way, is the same word used in, uh, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, when God breathes life into Adam. That's not an accident. That's not an accident. Think about it. Now Jesus is breathing new life into his disciples and telling them to receive the Holy Spirit. I'll just say as an aside, and I think it's important because some of you may be wondering about this, this is not an account of the Pentecost. There are some commentators who say this is the, 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 you know, John's Pentecost. Pentecost comes seven weeks later. I think what's happening here is that John is opening the window of eternity onto the beautiful relational community of Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This whole passage is profoundly Trinitarian. We can see here that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Bible describes the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit of the Father. You can see that in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 20. But also the Spirit of the Son, the Spirit of Christ. You can see that in Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. Jesus knows that they will never be able to accomplish this mission in his way without his Holy Spirit. And it's the same for us. Why do we believe that that could ever be possible? We're not expected to accomplish the mission of Jesus without the help of the calling, comforting, consoling, exhorting presence of the Holy Spirit. And as you look back over John, you'll see that Jesus has prepared them to understand what that role of the Holy Spirit will be. Uh, in, in chapter 14 and verse 16, you'll see Jesus talks about him being present with them. And then in, in chapter 14 and again in 16, the Spirit teaching and guiding them. And then in chapter 16 and verses 13, the Holy Spirit making Jesus known to them and to others. Johnny, 
MRC, church family, we all need the Holy Spirit to live in the way of Christ. He is the Spirit who has drawn us here together this morning. He is the Spirit who has opened our eyes to see the risen Lord Jesus. He is the Spirit who convicts us of sin with regards to God's righteousness. He's the Spirit who fills us with love and joy and peace. And he's here with us this morning. And he will be here with you when you leave this place, all of you, and Johnny, when you go to the Middle East. And he really, really wants each of us to, to draw into deeper union with the Father and the Son. Because when that happens, the world will surely see that the Father has sent the Son. And so this is your commissioning, Johnny. And MRC, this is your commission to go in the way of Christ. So as I end, I want to lead you, leave you with three concluding thoughts, and then I'm going to pray. And I'm going to pray, uh, my prayer is just going to be the words from a song we don't sing very often now, but it's a beautiful song uh, by Matt Redman called Let Worship Be the Fuel for Missions Flame. That will be my prayer. But three points to leave you with for you to consider. Number one, geography is less important than doxology. Huh? You're thinking, what's doxology? Um, let me rephrase it. Where you go is less important than how worshipful your life is. The dictionary defines doxology as an expression of praise to God, a short hymn sung as part of a Christian service. Um, so it means speaking out the praise of God. Where you end up being sent is far less important than the way in which you go than the worship and the exaltation of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in your life, individually and corporately. Secondly, contexts vary, but our calling is common. Johnny's commission today is not, in essence, any different to the commission that each and every one of you who have encountered the risen Lord Jesus and been sent by the Father and the Son back into the world experiences. It's a common calling. This, in fact, is what happens, if you think about it, every week when we gather. We're gathered by the Holy Spirit. We are the ecclesia of, of God or of Christ. We gather. We worship the Lord. We hear his word uh, preached. We, we, we uh, share the, the, the Lord's Supper. And then we're sent back into the world again. That is our pattern. That has always been the pattern since the very earliest church. But the context to which Johnny is going is different and we ought to be very conscious of that, acutely aware of that, and to pray for him, because Johnny will face obstacles. He will face opposition, and he will face discouragement in his life and ministry. That's going to happen externally, in the spiritual, cultural dimensions of the place that you're moving to. Spiritual powers are real, and they're powerful. We need to be aware of that, and we need to pray for him. Number two, it's going to happen within the teams and relationships of the body of Christ that you work with. I'm sorry to say it. I hope this is not as much as it was for us. Half the battles are with your uh, fellow believers in your team who you fall out with and try to get on with and all the rest of it. Um, but that is normal, a normal experience. And there will also be battles in your own heart. So let's pray for Johnny. Let's support him and let's encourage him. And finally, as I mentioned earlier, beware of false choices. I don't think in the Bible there is a monk-merchant divide. 
Yes, some are consecrated and set apart for ministry. We know that. That's absolutely true. But all of us are called. And that's what's happening today. We're, we're setting apart Johnny for a particular uh, a location. But the calling in many ways is for all of us. So let me finish by praying these words from Matt Redmond's song. Let worship be the fuel for mission's flame. We're going with a passion for your name. Lord, we're going for we care about your praise. So today, Lord, send us out. Let worship be the heart of mission's aim to see the nations recognize your fame till every tribe and tongue voices your praise. Lord, send us out. Lord, you should be the praise of every tongue. Jesus, you should be the joy of every heart. But until the fullness of your kingdom comes, until the final revelation dawns, send us out. Every tribe, every tongue, every creature in heaven and earth Every heart, every soul will sing your praise. We will sing your praise. Every note, every strain, every melody will be for you alone. Every harmony that flows from every tongue will sing your praise. We'll sing your praise. We will sing your praise. Amen. Amen.